Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. On the 19th of August in the present blessed years, sirs, our brave Captain Hull met the Guerriere so proud. Stout Dacre's her commander, who had never yet knew fear, sir, bade his merry men stand by, and his three ensigns showed. But our good constitution and our brave Yankee seamen in less than forty minutes forced the Englishmen to strike. All her masts by the board showed our guns were served by freemen, and the oldest English tar swore he'd never seen the like. From a patriotic play by W. Dunlap, 1812. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 22, Old Ironsides. On July 12, 1812, a long, sleek ship with sails unfurled eased out of Chesapeake Bay and into the open ocean. The stars and stripes fluttered proudly from one of her masts. Forty-nine heavy cannons were concealed behind hinged wooden ports along her hull. The embossed letters on her stern proudly identified her, Constitution. The man in command of this vessel, then possibly the single most lethal and most expensive weapon controlled by the United States at that time, was Isaac Hull, aged 39, born in Derby or possibly Shelton, Connecticut. The captain was a stout, almost squashy-looking fellow, but kind of roguishly handsome in the way that some men were in the early 19th century. Hull commanded five lieutenants, Charles Morris, Alexander Wadsworth, George C. Reed, Beekman Hoffman, and John Shubrick. The USS Constitution had been recently refitted. Hull saw to it that the ship was overhauled, her bottom scraped, and the copper plates under the waterline, intended to prevent rot, were cleaned. 
She was loaded with provisions for eight weeks. Not a long cruise, to be sure, but she was definitely ready for action, and Hull was confident of his ability to take on the British Navy and win, something that very few naval commanders from any nation on Earth had ever done successfully. In the meantime, in another part of the Atlantic, a British commander was also spoiling for a fight, and he also had every reason to be confident. Captain James Richard Dakers was very young, not quite 24, but he came from an illustrious British military family. His father was an admiral, and he also had an older brother, an uncle, and a cousin who rose to high rank in the Royal Navy. In March 1811, Dakers was given command of a ship called the Guerriere. Formerly a vessel in the French Navy, after many battles with British ships, the Guerriere was captured in 1806 and put into the service of the Royal Navy. When the United States declared war on Great Britain in June 1812, Dakers and the, and the squadron he was a part of was ready to blockade the coast and prey on American merchant shipping. This was the job he was born for. Dakers had a lot of luck and what you might call chutzpah. An American ship, the President, had defeated a British sloop of war, the Little Belt, in a surprise engagement. Hearing about this, Dakers ordered the words, not the Little Belt, painted on the Guerriere's topsail, and then sailed around the American coast, essentially taunting the Americans to come out and fight him. A few weeks later, Dakers sent an even more unmistakable message. The Guerriere stopped and boarded an American merchant vessel. Dakers wrote in the ship's log, quote, Captain Dakers, commander of His Britannic Majesty's frigate Guerriere of 44 guns, presents his compliments to Commodore Rogers of the United States frigate President, and will be very happy to meet him or any other American frigate of equal force to the President off Sandy Hook for the purpose of having a few minutes tete-a-tete." -tete. In the summer of 1812, these two men and their ships were on a collision course. It was inevitable that there was going to be a big battle between capital ships of the British and American navies eventually, and these two commanders, Isaac Hull and James Dakers, were in the right place at the right time. When they finally met, not only would sparks fly, but cannonballs too, and musket balls, and splinters of wood, the occasional human limb here and there. The battle between the Constitution and the Guerriere was one of the great stories of the Age of Sail, and of the second decade. But there was another battle too, a few months later off the coast of South America, and it was in these two battles that the USS Constitution cemented her reputation as the most celebrated and beloved ship ever to serve in the U.S. Navy. Her exploits were a much-needed bright spot in a long stretch of gloom and bad news. Even more than the military result of her victories, the exploits of the Constitution carried the hopes and pride of a nation and formed a key part of American identity at a crucial time in its development. Join me now for a story of booming cannons, swinging ropes, swashbuckling commanders, and real-life adventure. The story of the ship that became known as Old Ironsides. Before we begin tonight's episode, I have a few announcements and housekeeping matters that may be of interest to fans of this podcast. First of all, we're coming to the end of the first season of Second Decade. 
This episode, episode 22, will be either the second-to-last or third-to-last episode of my first season. The podcast will then be on hiatus for the summer months. I am planning to return in the fall with a whole new season. There's still so much more to tell about this fascinating time in history. I'd like to thank everyone who's listened, shared, and supported the podcast over the last eight months. We recently hit 10,000 all-time downloads, which I know is not a big number compared to some of the top podcasts out there, but it's amazing for me. Anyone who tells you that history's dead or that people aren't interested in it anymore, this podcast and the numerous other history podcasts out there that are very popular prove the opposite. Secondly, I'm soon going to be conducting a series of interactive history classes online. This project is still in its developmental phase, but I'm definitely going to be offering an in-depth online course on the American Revolution, beginning in August, and probably a host of smaller one-off classes on a range of subjects. These classes will be conducted by Google Hangouts or some other freely available software. All you'll need is a webcam, microphone, and internet access. There's a host of subjects I'm thinking about. I'm certainly going to do one on the contradictions of Thomas Jefferson, and I'm also thinking about some more recent history. It won't be limited to the second decade of the 19th century. These are not TED Talks or static video lectures. These will be interactive courses where you can ask questions, discuss, follow up, and examine documents and historical evidence for yourselves. I'm really excited about this program. I'm not sure exactly what form it will take yet, but if you're interested, keep checking back on my website, seanmunger.com. The one-off courses will be $25, and the American Revolution course, six weeks long, will be $200. The details aren't up yet, but they will be coming on my website, and I'll also announce them on my social media. Now let's return to the story of Old Ironsides. The story of the USS Constitution begins not in Boston, not in Washington, D.C., but off the coast of North Africa. In 1785, Two American merchant vessels were captured by Barbary pirates, and their crews, 21 men in all, held for ransom. The day of Algiers, one of the rulers of the Barbary pirates, demanded an incredible $59,000 ransom for the return of the Americans, an outrageous sum that the fledgling U.S. government couldn't pay even if it wanted to. There were repeated attempts by the U.S. government, including by the American minister to Paris, a fellow named Thomas Jefferson, to negotiate the release of the hostages. All failed. During this time, the new constitution was drafted, ratified, and put into place. The first president, George Washington, continued to try to negotiate. His attempts backfired. The Algerian pirates proceeded to capture more American sailors. By 1794, there were over a hundred of them being held hostage in North Africa. Very reluctantly, Congress passed an act giving President Washington the option either to build capital ships for the protection of U.S. lives and property, or to purchase such ships from abroad. On March 27, 1794, the act went into effect. Washington chose to build rather than buy. That turned out to be a very smart choice. Ultimately, six frigates were built, varying in size and armament from 44 guns to 36 guns. The contracts were given to Joshua Humphreys, a Philadelphia shipbuilder. The six ships were names chosen by Washington himself, the Constitution, the President, the United States, the Chesapeake, the Constellation, and the Congress. The Constitution, built in Boston between November 1794 and September 1797, 
was a very American ship. The wood for her sides, 21 inches thick, came from over 2,000 oak trees that grew at a place called Gascoigne Bluff on St. Simons Island, Georgia, which was an old Native American campsite. Her masts were white pine trees grown in Maine. Paul Revere, silversmith and hero of the American Revolution, forged the hooks and bolts that went into her construction. She was 204 feet long, 43 feet wide, and her main mast towered 220 feet over the water. The Navy barely avoided a shutdown in construction when a peace treaty was finally concluded with the Day of Algiers, which cost the United States over $990,000 in ransom and tribute. But Congress decided, by the skin of its teeth, to finish construction. On September 20, 1797, the Constitution was launched in front of a crowd of dignitaries, including the new president, John Adams, and the governor of Massachusetts. When the mighty ship was set free down the slipways, she slowly began to move, 27 feet, and then came to a dead stop. The ship was so heavy that the slipway framework sank underneath her. She was stuck. The slipways were hastily rebuilt, and a month later, the Constitution finally went to float. She was ready just in time. In the spring of 1798, President Adams deployed the new ships of the American fleet as a counterpoint to the French, who were then harassing American merchant vessels. The long career of the Constitution prior to the War of 1812 doesn't concern us much, but let's just say that she definitely distinguished herself in the undeclared naval war with France, which lasted from 1798 to 1800. She also proved very useful in the next conflict, which was against those Barbary pirates in the Mediterranean. Dispatched by President Thomas Jefferson in response to another pirate tribute demand, this one from the Pasha of Tripoli, the Constitution and several other American ships participated in a number of actions on the coast of North Africa. Jefferson never paid the Pasha's outrageous demands. In this sense, the Constitution and the other ships, initiated under the Washington administration, carried out exactly the mission they were planned for, to prevent American shipping from being harassed on the high seas by Barbary pirates or anyone else. It's easy to cite the success of the Tripolitanian Wars as a mark of pride in American exceptionalism, our entry onto the world stage, so to speak, letting other nations know that the United States wasn't to be trifled with. There might be something to this in terms of establishing American identity, but in the latter half of that same decade, and especially after the turn of the second decade, the sad truth was that the United States was to be trifled with, at least on the high seas. Neither France, nor especially Britain, who had an immense navy, was too frightened of the Constitution, or any other American ship. In episode 15, the first of my three-part series on the War of 1812, I went into some detail on the causes of the war, particularly the rising tensions on the Atlantic between the Royal Navy and the American Merchant Marine. After a series of embargoes and a violent incident involving the USS Chesapeake, by June 1812 American politicians, at least some American politicians, saw war with Britain as the only answer, or perhaps the preferable answer. In reality, the decision was insane. But from the standpoint of the Navy, they were there to carry out the orders of civilian leadership. And on June 18, 1812, the U.S. Congress had made its intention plain. On that day, we officially entered a state of armed conflict with Great Britain. On June 21st, three days after the declaration of war, the Constitution sailed out of the Chesapeake Bay, 
ordered to join a squadron gathering in the waters off New York, under the command of Captain John Rogers. Although she'd been refit and those copper plates scraped and cleaned, in late June the Constitution was barely ready for action. She was missing some officers and a good deal of men, and was also low on provisions. Hull put into Annapolis on June 28th to pick up more supplies and men. On the whole, Captain Hull did a pretty good job of getting the ship in fighting shape. On July 12th, Constitution emerged from the protected waters of the Chesapeake Bay, out into the open ocean, headed for the rendezvous with Rogers' squadron, which was not yet in New York waters, but was still looking for a force of British ships bound from Jamaica. At 2 o'clock p.m. on the afternoon of July 17, 1812, a lookout aboard the Constitution sighted four sails on the horizon headed north. Captain Hull believed he'd found Rogers' fleet and ordered the ship to sail toward the newcomers. They were sailing roughly in the same direction, but there was still a lot of distance between them. But as it started to get toward dusk on that brilliant midsummer day, Hull, who had a reputation for being shrewd, started to wonder if that really was Rogers' fleet out there or if it was the enemy. At 7.30 p.m., Captain Hull ordered the decks cleared for action. He and his lookouts kept a sharp watch through their spyglasses at the ships sailing on the horizon, soon reduced to dim specks in the falling darkness. During the night, the wind fell to nothing. By daybreak, the Constitution, her sails flapping, was drifting in range of what turned out to be a British ship, the Guerriere, commanded by James Dakers. There were also four other ships, the Africa, the Shannon, the Belvedera, and the Aeolus. Soon dozens of cannons were in range of the American frigate. The British ships were better at catching what little wind there was. Dakers hauled up his colors and gave chase to the Constitution. Their cannons began firing, but there were no hits. Captain Hull, eager to get the becalmed ship underway by any means he could, wet down the sails. Wet canvas can catch more wind than dry canvas. Then Lieutenant Morris, the second-in-command, the Commander Riker, if you will, to Hull's Captain Picard, suggested a neat seafarer's trick called kedging. If they could deploy an anchor far out ahead of the ship with a long rope tied to it, then sort of pull themselves along that rope, they could at least get the ship moving. Kind of like how you put a car in neutral and roll it down a slight hill to try to get it started. It was a bold move and a dangerous one. The kedge anchor had to be deployed by men in a forward boat, and with the guerriere lobbing cannonballs in their direction, there were no guarantees of success. Plus, even if they got the ship moving, could they keep it moving long enough and fast enough to pull away from the British? To the great credit of Lieutenant Charles Morris and the crew of the Constitution, the kedging gambit worked. They managed to pull ahead of the British. Realizing what was going on, Captain Dakers ordered his men to start kedging as well he was determined not to let Hull escape. For an incredible 57 hours, the Guerriere and the British squadron chased the Constitution, but the prey slithered out of Dakers' grasp. The chase, one of the most thrilling naval exploits in American history up to that time, was a marathon. No one slept aboard the Constitution, and the pursuit took place in terrible heat. It didn't help that Hull ordered 2,300 gallons of fresh water pumped out of the ship in order to make it lighter. But by the morning of July 20th, helped by the wind of a rain squall that came up the previous afternoon, Constitution had escaped her pursuers. The captain of one of the other British ships wrote a letter in which he said, quote, 
nothing can exceed my mortification for the extraordinary escape of the American frigate, and I am likewise much concerned it should fall so heavily on Dacres. End quote. Hull and the Constitution reached Boston. They stayed only long enough to pick up some provisions and find out that Rogers' squadron hadn't yet reached New York. On August 2nd, 1812, Hull put back out to sea. It was an extraordinarily lucky coincidence that a piece of mail bound for him did not reach Boston until after he'd left. The mail contained new orders from Washington. Hull was to be relieved of the Constitution and instead take command of a smaller ship so Captain Bainbridge, a senior officer, could take the Constitution. Hull never got these orders until after the great battle that made him and his ship famous. For the next two weeks, the Constitution sailed around the coast of Nova Scotia, occasionally sighting and harassing British merchant vessels. In one action on August 16th, the Constitution took on a British prize crew and held them as prisoners. One of these prisoners gave Hull a fateful piece of information. The squadron he'd tangled with the previous month was now quite close, just off the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. Hull, perhaps hungry for a rematch, changed course. At two o'clock on the afternoon of August 19, 1812, a lookout aboard the Constitution sighted a sail of a single ship bearing east-southeast, not a squadron, a single ship. As Hull gave chase, the ship materialized into spyglasses. Indeed, it was Hull's nemesis. The Guerriere, sailing alone in the direction of Halifax, seemed ready for a fight. One of the great naval battles in the entire Age of Sail was about to take place. The Constitution and the Guerriere were pretty evenly matched, though on paper Constitution had a slight advantage. She was built to carry 44 guns, though sometimes she carried 49. The cannons aboard these ships were portable, though of course very heavy. Guerriere had 38 guns. When military ships matched each other in the age of sail, often the outcome of a battle came down to which one had the better trained crew, and the more shrewd captain. After they initially saw each other on the afternoon of August 19, 1812, it took a while for the two ships to close the distance between them. Neither captain, Hull of the Constitution, or Dacres of the Guerriere, wanted to run away this time. At 5 o'clock, Hull gave the order to beat to quarters. You see this in every movie taking place in the Age of Sail, where the drummer boys start up, everybody takes their positions at the guns, they open the gun ports, that sort of thing. The first shot of the battle came from the Guerriere at approximately 5.05 p.m. Dacres fired a starboard broadside at his enemy. This was exactly what it sounds like, discharging every gun, or almost every gun, on the whole starboard side of the ship. Unfortunately for the Brits, they didn't hit the Constitution. Dacres came around immediately to fire his port broadside. For the most part, he was aiming too high. Only two cannonballs struck the American frigate. After the battle, there was a famous anecdote that one of these shots literally bounced off the hull, which isn't that hard to imagine, considering her sides were nearly two feet thick of solid oak. A crewman is said to have exclaimed, Huzzah! Her sides are made of iron! The Constitution's nickname was Bourne. The way the ships were situated, only Constitution's forward guns could aim directly at Guerriere. This was intentional. Hull didn't want to be what they called in naval warfare, raked, which means subjected to a full-on broadside from front to back. 
I admit I'm a bit of an amateur when it comes to the tactical stuff of sea warfare, so it's possible I may get something wrong here now and again. Hey, my expertise is in environmental history, so cut me some slack. Anyway, for the next 45 minutes, Constitution and Guerriere sort of danced around each other. Dakers kept firing broadsides to no real effect, and Hull fired his forward guns, no effect. If something was going to be accomplished, one or both commanders was going to have to try another tactic. Hull took the initiative. He ordered extra sail, deploying of a sail called the Top Gallant Sail, and turned directly toward the British ship. Now Constitution and Guerriere were sailing in the same direction alongside each other, but Constitution was faster, and she had more sails. Dakers knew that he was going to be in the kill zone in a matter of minutes. There was nothing he could do but order every possible gun to be fired, and hope he could blast Hull out of the water before Constitution's more and slightly heavier guns pounded him to pieces. The gun crews aboard the British ship were working feverishly. Powder monkeys, usually young boys, were passing buckets of powder up through a complicated system of portholes on the gun deck. Incidentally, there were ten Americans among the Guerrier's crew, prisoners or impressed sailors, but Dakers let them go below and not take part in the battle, so they wouldn't have to try to kill their own countrymen. Aboard Constitution, all the guns were ready, and the gunners stood by with the strings, which triggered the cannons, in their hands, ready to fire. Cannonballs from the Guerriere began smashing into Constitution's gun deck. Several men were completely blown up. Captain Hull had not given the order to fire. Morris, the second-in-command, kept asking for permission, but Hull wanted to wait for precisely the right moment. Finally, he gave the order, Fire! Constitution opened up with a broadside, pumping cannonballs into the Guerriere's hull. The fierce exchange continued for another ten minutes, which for men on both sides must have seemed like the longest ten minutes of their lives. Hull was confident, once he had Guerriere where he wanted her, that, th that his ship would be able to take her. Both technical superiority and better seamanship seemed to have won the day. Guerriere's gunners were good, but Constitution's cannons were just a little bit more powerful, and if you're firing broadside, the little bit on each cannon adds up, in the whole, to a big advantage. One cannonade struck the Guerriere's mizzen mast. It toppled over, crashing onto the starboard side and tearing a hole in the deck. The mast also trailed down into the water. This shot was probably the decisive one in the battle. With the mast gone and trailing down, it acted as sort of a second rudder, which meant Dakers couldn't steer too well. Recognizing this, Hull ordered the Constitution turned hard aport. He was going to cut across the enemy's bow. Unfortunately, Constitution was hardly unscathed. Some of the ship's sails had been blasted by the Guerriere's cannonballs, and each pierced sail meant a loss of speed and maneuverability. The ship didn't swing as quickly as he had hoped. Hull had time to fire only two broadsides, but they were brutally effective. To use that term from naval warfare... Dakers and the Guerriere got raked, hardcore. Then the Guerriere's bowsprit, the pole that sticks out at the front of the ship, got tangled in the rigging of one of the Constitution's masts. The two ships were locked together. Now they were in close enough range that Marines with muskets, who routinely traveled aboard ships, were in range of each other. The booming of cannon shot was replaced by the crackle of musket fire. Both captains gave the order to get ready to repel boarders. Lieutenant Morris tried to throw a rope around the Guerriere's bowsprit, 
but he took a full volley of muskets right in the torso and collapsed to the deck. An American Marine, William Bush, was also killed and several others wounded by musket fire. The two ships, locked in a deadly embrace, drifted around in a counterclockwise direction while the fighting continued. Finally, they separated. Then Guerriere suffered another, ultimately fatal, disaster. The foremast and mainmast both broke off at deck level. In the Navy, they called this falling by the board. Essentially, the British ship could no longer steer at all. At 6.30 p.m., Dakers ordered a shot fired to leeward. This was kind of a truce signal. The two commanders, their ships now separate and moving apart, each assessed the damage. It was possible that the battle would be resumed, and Hull was certainly ready for another round. But after sounding his ship and getting a tally of the casualties, Dakers realized, to borrow another Star Trek idiom, that resistance was futile. He ordered the Guerriere to strike her colors. The battle was over. It was a little more than five hours since the ships had first sighted each other, and just short of two hours since they started shooting. One of the American officers, Lieutenant George Reed, went aboard with a boarding party. They found the Guerriere a complete wreck. Splintered beams, rigging, and ropes were laying everywhere. There were bullet holes all over the place, and lots of dead and dying British sailors. Guerriere had suffered 15 dead and 78 wounded. Constitution had 7 dead, 7 wounded. 267 officers and men surrendered to Captain Hull. The captain originally intended to take the Guerriere under tow and bring her into port. The two ships remained side by side that night, but the British ship was so wrecked that the next day, August 20th, Hull ordered her to be set on fire. Before doing so, he asked Captain Dakers if there was anything he wanted to save from his ship. The British captain said, Yes, my mother's Bible, which I've carried with me for years. On August 20, 1812, the HMS Guerriere burned, blew up, and sank about 400 miles southeast of Halifax, Nova Scotia. So far as I know, her wreckage has never been found. It's about 300 miles due west of where the Titanic sank a century later, and the seafloor in this part of the ocean is more than two miles deep. Hull could have continued his cruise, but he wanted to bring news of the victory home as soon as possible. That was very much a good move. The news from everywhere in the first months of the War of 1812 was pretty uniformly terrible for the United States, and Constitution's victory over the Guerriere was the sole bright spot. Captain Hull and his officers were wine, dined, and celebrated at a victory dinner at Faneuil Hall in Boston on September 5th. Congress eventually gave him a gold medal. There was no Congressional Medal of Honor at that time. Despite his victory, Captain Hull never had another combat assignment. He had family troubles. His brother had been killed and there was no one left to provide for his wife and kids, so Captain Hull requested a shore assignment to take care of his family. Hull, incidentally, was the nephew of General William Hull, who surrendered Fort Detroit to the British and was court-martialed for it. Considering the Navy had already been planning to transfer Isaac Hull to another ship even before the battle, it was obvious that the Constitution would not be commanded by him on her next cruise. Indeed, her next captain was Commodore William Bainbridge, who took over on September 15, 1812. Lieutenant Morris, remember him? He was the one who got blown away by muskets during the fiercest phase of the battle. Well, he was badly wounded, but managed to survive. During his convalescence, he was promoted to captain, and got his own ship, the Adams, in 1814. He served in the U.S. Navy until 1847. 
Captain Dacres of the Guerriere was court-martialed when he returned to England. This didn't necessarily imply wrongdoing. It was standard procedure in the Royal Navy when a commander lost a ship. He was acquitted. It came out at the trial that the mizzen mast, the one that broke off, was possibly rotten. Constitution sailed again on October 27, 1812, this time to take the war into the South Atlantic. She was accompanied by the USS Hornet. Their mission? Find ships of the British East India Company and capture them, hopefully with a lot of money on board. This voyage to the coasts of South America was a troubled one. Bainbridge was not nearly as popular with the crew of the Constitution as Hull had been, and the log of this voyage has a lot of notations of punishments being meted out. Every Age of Sail movie has one of those punishment scenes, some guy getting lashed to a mast and whipped or something. This kind of thing happened a lot. On December 13, 1812, the Constitution sailed into a port called São Salvador in Brazil. There was a British sloop of war at anchor there. Bainbridge and Captain Lawrence of the Hornet hoped to do battle with this ship and capture it, so they patrolled outside the harbor, waiting for the British ship to come out. The British captain wisely declined. He had over a million pounds of cash on board, and he wasn't about to tangle with the Constitution and risk losing it, especially after what had happened with the Guerriere. The Constitution and the Hornet separated. Bainbridge left Lawrence hanging around outside Sal Salvador, just in case the British captain decided to try to make a run for it. In the meantime, he, Bainbridge, took the Constitution up the coast, looking for any other British ships that might be bound for the port. On the morning of December 29, 1812, lookouts aboard Constitution sighted two sails on the horizon. One was a British frigate. The other was an American merchantman that had been captured. The frigate was the Java, 38 guns, commanded by Henry Lambert. Like Dacres, he was from an old British naval family and had extensive experience in the Napoleonic Wars. A chase ensued for much of the day. Java was the same class as the Guerriere, so there was something of a rematch in the works. At about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Constitution caught up with her. Bainbridge ordered a shot fired across the Java's bow. Rematch on. Captain Lambert aboard the Java replied with a full broadside. This hit damaged Constitution's rigging, but she was far from out of action. Bainbridge ordered a broadside of his own. The two ships circled around each other, blasting away at each other for about three hours. Here's a quote from Bainbridge's log. A general action, with round and grape, then commenced, the enemy keeping at a much greater distance than I wished, but could not bring him to a close action without exposing ourselves to several rakes. End quote. Bainbridge stationed sharpshooters with muskets on the Constitution's masts and rigging. Their job was to pick off as many men aboard the Java as possible. One of these snipers, in fact, capped Lambert himself. During the battle, the British captain was mortally wounded by musket fire. Java's first broadside was by far the most effective, but she did later inflict severe damage on the Constitution's rudder. Bainbridge wrote in his log, quote, at 40 minutes past two, determined to close with the enemy notwithstanding his raking. Set the fire and mainsail and luffed up close to him. At 50 minutes past two, the enemy's jib boom got foul of our mizzen rigging. At three, the head of the enemy's bowsprit and jib boom were shot away by us. At five minutes past three, shot away the enemy's foremast by the board. At 15 past three, shot away his main topmast just above the cap. At 40 minutes past three, shot away the gaff and spanker boom. At 55 minutes past three, shot away his mizzenmast nearly by the board. 
end quote. Honestly, I have no idea what all these terms mean. I don't know what a spanker boom is, for instance, but the overall effect is pretty clear. The Java was rapidly getting smaller with each shot from the Constitution. Basically, she was dismasted. There was pretty much nothing left except the hull. Bainbridge himself was wounded in the battle by the same shot that took out Constitution's rudder. Nevertheless, he refused to relinquish command. Java's captain, as I said, was mortally wounded. It fell to one of his officers, Lieutenant Henry Chads, to surrender the Java at 5.30 p.m. Constitution had roundly won her second big single-ship encounter. Like Guerriere, Java was a total loss. On January 2, 1813, Bainbridge ordered her burnt. She blew up and sank. It's not clear exactly how many casualties the British suffered in this battle. The official report by Chads said 22 were dead, but many more seemed to have died of wounds later on. One of them was Captain Lambert. He was carried to Sao Salvador along with the other British prisoners and died on shore. It was reported that Commodore Bainbridge returned Lambert's sword and officially bade him farewell from the deck of the Constitution. There was much honor in both navies in the second decade. Chads, like Dakers, was also court-martialed when he returned to England. And, like Dakers, he was acquitted. Many in the British Navy admitted begrudging respect for the American Navy after these victories. The victories of the Constitution against the Guerriere and the Java were a source of enormous pride in the United States, which, as I mentioned earlier, sorely needed some victories to celebrate. The War of 1812 went very badly for the United States, especially on land. Toward the end of the war, the British even raided and burnt down Washington, D.C. But the Constitution represents one of the few, very clear and unequivocal military victories of American forces in that war, and a prestigious one. We had beaten the Royal Navy at their own game. Isaac Hull, incidentally, went on to command various Navy yards in his remaining years of service. He ran into considerable trouble with a strike at the Washington Navy Yard in 1835, which eventually flared into a race riot. After this, Hull retired from the Navy and died peacefully in 1843. Under several different captains, the Constitution went on to various other duties for the remainder of the War of 1812, and in fact emerged from the war undefeated, the only American capital ship to do so. She went on to serve in the Mediterranean in the 1820s, and in the 1830s was narrowly saved from being broken up by a public relations campaign, which banked on her patriotic reputation as the ship that had won such great victories against the British. She even participated briefly in some actions in the Civil War, but after that, in the transition of navies from sail to steam, she didn't have much practical use. There were several near misses with oblivion, but beginning in the 1920s, she was restored to her former glory. I visited the USS Constitution docked in Boston three times, most recently in 2014, just before her latest overhaul and restoration. It's really an amazing tour to get to see the ship much as it was in the second decade. Her old wooden decks are seeped through with history. But however long she lasts, hopefully still a while yet, the ship nicknamed Old Ironsides will always be most fondly remembered for those great victories in the year 1812. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend. Talk about it on social media. Subscribing, leaving a star rating, and a review on iTunes is especially helpful, because it's going to help other history buffs like you find this podcast. 
I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. In addition to my Patreon account, you can find me on Twitter at seanmunger. There's an underscore there. And my website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include The Frigate Constitution by Ira N. Hollis, published in Boston by Houghton Mifflin and Company, 1901. Music Credits the main theme of this podcast is titled String Impromptu Number 1 by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. <laughs>